Um, I was going by sheer habit to introduce Anthony as the father of a young family because one rather, uh, first of all he looks young and secondly one forgets how the years pass. He tells me to my astonishment that his youngest child is 25. Um, Anthony himself took early retirement, it would have had to be early. He used to work for the Highland Council in uh, what's now called Highland, it used to be called Invernessia. I'm old enough to remember. Um, and he's going to talk, as I say, on where is the ecumenism virus taking us? Anthony Fraser. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. I'm a little frightened here. There's a book here, more Catholic than the Pope. Uh, and there may be some criticism of members of the hierarchy in my speech, so I just advise you at this stage that, it's, that any criticism is in a spirit of filial obedience to the hierarchy. This year represents the 40th anniversary of the Ecumenical Council 1963-65. to The adjective ecumenical was to have a significance that none of us could foresee. In preconciliar times, ecumenism barely featured in the church's lexicon. It was an activity for a selective group whose activities were circumscribed by strict curial and papal guidelines. What some describe as the quest for church unity as currently understood was foreign to the preconciliar church, which considered that it, already, that it already had the unity which Christ desired it have. The church did seek a unity of all Christians, however, in the sense that those outside the church would return to her unity. It should be noted, however, that the impetus for modern ecumenism can be traced to a conference of Protestants in Edinburgh in 1910. In the post-conciliar lexicon, the term ecumenical is normally associated with the relationship between the Catholic Church and those churches which have separated themselves through schism or heresy. Its original meaning has been extended to allow it to be used loosely to describe the church's relationship with non-Christian religions, a confusion endorsed to some extent by the fact that the church's interreligious dialogue with the Jews belongs to the Pontifical Council for Promoting Christian Unity. Some have, descri some have described post-conciliar ecumenism as a virus, others as a cancer. I agree. But before examining the debilitating effect of this virus, this cancer, let us first examine the background to this new ecumenism. Vatican II was a council heralded by unbounded papal enthusiasm and optimism, in part based upon the strength of the preconciliar church. John XXIII's perception of the preconciliar church was, what, was of a church which has opposed decisively the materialistic ideologies which deny faith, has witnessed the rise and growth of the immense energies of the apostolate of prayer, of action in all fields, has seen the emergence of a clergy constantly better equipped in learning and virtue for its mission, reinvigorated intellectually and ready for trial. Blessed John XXIII sought to set the church so vibrant with vitality upon the world so that it might contribute more efficaciously to the solution of the problems of the modern age. He could not have imagined the trial the church was about to undergo. Paul VI, on April 2nd, 1969, exuded the same optimism following the council. 
A wave of serenity and optimism has spread through the church and world from the council, a consoling and positive Christianity, acceptable and amiable, friendly to life, to men, even to earthly values, to our society, to our history. Nine months later, Paul VI was to exclaim, this symbolical ship, the church, feels the buffeting of the storm characteristic of our times, which sometimes draws from our lips the imploring cry of the terrified disciples, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. He was also to freely admit that the smoke of Satan had entered the church. No pope has yet confirmed, confirmed that its foul stench has left. It is easy to see in Paul VI's optimistic reflection the integral humanism of Jacques Maritain, whose disciple the pontiff was. Henri Caron describes Maritain's integral humanism as a universal fraternity of men of goodwill belonging to different religions or none, which, within which the church should exercise a leavening influence without imposing itself and without demanding that it be recognized as the one true church. Our late pontiff, Pope John Paul II, may he rest in the peace of Christ, equally expressed similar optimism in relation to this fraternity of men of goodwill. About 15 years ago, on the anniversary of the Council Degree Agentes, the Holy Father stated, God is preparing a great springtime for Christianity. We can already see its first signs. In fact, both in the non-Christian world and in the traditionally Christian world, people are gradually drawing closer to gospel ideals and values. Today, in fact, there is a new consensus among peoples about these values, the rejection of violence and war, respect for the human person and human rights, etc. This consensus of which the late Pope spoke sounds remarkably similar to that called for by the notorious Hans Kuhn in his declaration towards a global ethic presented to the syncretist parliament of the world's religions in 1993. But the late Holy Father, too, had to reverse his optimism, expressing the following sentiments in Evangelium Vitae. There is an extraordinary increase in gravity of threats to the life of individuals and peoples. In addition to the ancient scourges of poverty, etc., new threats are emerging on an alarmingly vast scale. Broad sectors of public opinion justify certain crime. We are faced by an objective conspiracy against life. And he was talking there immediately about natural life. The threats to the supernatural life were even more manifest. The optimism of these three post-conciliar popes was not to be realised. Don't take my word for this. Cardinal Ratzinger frankly admitted that papal optimism was misplaced, stating that if we look at the church as a whole, Pope John XXIII's prayer that the council might prove to be a new leap forward the source of renewed life and unity has not been answered. One might ask why their prayers have not been answered. About that I will proffer a humble unlearned layman's opinion in a few minutes. Alas, the eternal optimists are still with us, particularly in the field of ecumenism. Only a few weeks ago, Archbishop Conte of Glasgow advised us that the quest for church unity in the years following Vatican II was a roller coaster ride propelled by the Holy Spirit. I think we'll leave such an assessment to the judgment of history and perhaps to future councils. But it must be admitted that our shepherds regard the ecumenical movement and the new ecumenism as a great blessing. This is not to say that all our pastors are oblivious to the dangers which might accrue from ecumenism. Archbishop Conte last month included among these the temptation 
to discard the essentials of the faith in the pursuit of unity. He said, The danger consisted in seeing those elements of our treasured patrimony as being simply heirlooms, which, however valuable, can be set aside or placed in a museum. Some elements of our faith simply cannot be set aside. Alas, in his very own archdiocese, elements of that treasured patrimony, the old mass, did end up in the secular and pantheistic St. Mungo Museum of Religion during the reign of his predecessor, Cardinal Winning. One can hardly disagree with the Archbishop's warning regarding the essentials of the faith, and one would agree, surely, that the discarding of the essentials of the faith in pursuit of unity is synonymous with false ecumenism. Does not the decree in ecumenism advise us? It is, of course, essential that doctrine be clearly presented in its entirety. Nothing is so foreign to the spirit of ecumenism as a false conciliatory approach which harms the purity of Catholic doctrine and obscures, and obscures its assured genuine meaning. And again, in another place it states, ecumenical activity must not be other than fully and sincerely Catholic, that is, loyal to the truth we have received from the apostles and the fathers, and in harmony with the faith which the Catholic Church has always professed. Nevertheless, it is in this precise area that traditional Catholics have the greatest difficulty in reconciling the truth we have received from the apostles and the faith which the Church has always professed with the ecumenism that has developed since the Council. When our late Holy Father came to the papal throne, he remarked us in his encyclical, Redemptor Hominis, I am entering into the rich inheritance of the recent pontificates. This inheritance has struck deep roots in the awareness of the Church in an utterly new way quite unknown previously, thanks to the Second Vatican Council. It is precisely this utterly new way quite unknown previously which causes such difficulty. The Council was a harbinger of novelty, novelty in liturgy, novelty in mission, novelty in catechesis, novelty in ecclesiology, and novelty, until the Second Vatican Council, was the subject of St. Pius X's health warning, far, far, far from our priests be the love of novelty. A French priest observed that the post-conciliar pontificates have been a battleground not only between modernists and traditionalists, but a civil war within the very hearts of the pontiffs themselves, a war in which their attraction towards the spirit of novelty is often countered by their need to defend tradition. For example, we have Pope Paul's new mass versus his credo. Alas, the desire for novelty finds expression, particularly in ecumenism. Earlier I suggested I would offer an opinion as to perhaps why the post-conciliar pontiff's prayers were not answered. Perhaps we may find in the Council's very dawn the seeds of destruction accruing from its ecumenical dimension. The late Michael Davis advised us in Pope John's Council that at the beginning of the Council in 1963, the Rhine Group were opposed to a separate schema devoted to Our Lady. Because the Council Fathers were concerned, what will the Protestants think? Karl Rahner claimed that unimaginable harm would result from the ecumenical point of view, and that all success in the field of ecumenism would be rendered worthless by retention of the schema. Although the Liberal Fathers did not get all their way in relation to the treatment of Our Lady, they did win a crucial vote with a record narrow majority of 17 to have the schema made a mere chapter in the schema in the church rather than a schema wholly devoted to Our Lady. The French review, Fidelity Catholique, reports that on the 30th of November, a month later, 
they received a letter from Abiberto, the theological advisor at the council, to Monsignor Lefebvre, the then superior general of the Holy Ghost Fathers. Here is how Abiberto felt about that result. The number of times I have wept after the votes of the 29th and 30th of October. The chastisement of God will come from these votes. The end of the session settle things in heaven. The son desires that no one insult his mother. The chastisement is this awful mess. I accuse myself before the whole world for having doubted the love of our Lord for his mother and doubted the care he would take to avenge her honour. The vengeance has been prompt. The council has been mad for six weeks and it will be fortunate if it stops there. The vote of 29th October 1963 apostatized the gospel of the wedding feast at Cana. Far from inviting the Virgin Mary, it had signified her departure. She hampered, she hampered the council which invited her to leave. She wasn't asked twice. The earth didn't tremble. Lightning didn't strike St. Peter's. The Virgin Mary left discreetly in profound silence, only so discreetly in a silence so profound that the words vinum non habent, they have no wine, remained unsaid and the fate of the second session had been sealed. When one is at an ecumenical council from which one makes the Virgin Mary leave, one must at least recall that she was not only asked to step aside, that much is known. The Blessed Virgin having nothing to say, Jesus has done nothing. The water remained water, not even potable water, but wash water, just as at Cana. In place of their demanding on their knees in solemn supplication, that she pronounced they have no wine, they had formally declared her annoying, embarrassing, a hindrance before her son, she the spouse of the Holy Spirit. This honest, contemporary opinion, expressed in anguished terms, coupled with the infamous Rome-Moscow Accord, which led to another matter dear to Our Lady's heart, the conversion of Russia, being implicitly banned from the council floor, and a remaining widespread belief that the Fatima message really concerns a great apostasy might well explain the failure of the Council to give rise to the optimistic expectations of the post-conciliar pontiffs. Can any Council which effectively begins, even by the narrowest of votes, by sidelining Our Lady lest she offend Protestant sensitivities, really expect to give rise to a flourishing, vibrant faith? True, the Council Fathers were to witness Paul VI declare Our Lady Mother of the Church, but she was so declared before many council fathers who had already sidelined her and who in addition had proceeded to craft council decrees in an ambiguous and ecumenical fashion to favour relationships with those for whose sake she had been so disgracefully treated. It is indeed a pity that they could, that they could not have taken a dose of their own conciliar advice to avoid a false conciliatory approach. It is precisely this false conciliatory approach which marks modern ecumenism. Its most important tenet is that our separated brethren or unbelievers must never be offended. Its watchword is appeasement. This, as Cardinal Daniel you remark, is opposed to Catholic, nay apostolic tradition. Paul expresses himself most forcibly on the missionary's duty not to care in the least whether men think well or ill of him. A real servant of Christ must necessarily give offence sometimes. Too much tenderness on this score means scaling down the demands of Christ, softening the gospel for fear of shocking human sensibilities, which is a dereliction of duty. Not that one should seek to cause offence. 
Despite all of this, some of a traditional or conservative inclination tended to share the optimism of the post-conciliar pontiffs and laid the blame for aberrations on a false application of council decrees. Only the most dyed-in-the-wool papal or episcopal atrist takes that line nowadays. The truth is that the council decrees are often a source of disorder in the church precisely because they were laced with ambiguity. For example, as Christopher Ferrara and Thomas Woods confirm in their stimulating work, The Great Facade, regarding the decree, the decree in the liturgy, it is amazing that anyone who claims to have read it thoroughly could still maintain that its true interpretation precludes the liturgical innovations that have been inflicted upon us. In other words, the decree is a problem, not the solution. Of course, the traditional liturgy of the church, which no pontiff has the right to destroy, was like every other aspect of Catholic life, and like Our Lady herself, pushed to the side to feed the council's ecumenical maw. The seeds of this in respect of the liturgy lay in Article 1 of the decree, which stated that it was the council's goal to adopt to adapt institutions more closely to the needs of our age and to foster whatever it could to promote union among those who believe in Christ. It saw special reasons for the renewal of the liturgy in this. That this was attained was acknowledged by the Reverend Yaroslav Pelikan, who provides a Protestant commentary in Abbott's The Documents of Vatican II, in which he acknowledged that several of the decree's fundamental principles represent the acceptance, however belated, of the liturgical programme set forth by the reformers. Nor does this problem apply to the decree in the liturgy alone. Many decrees were riddled with ambiguity and weasel words which could be manipulated to do the opposite of what I suspect many traditional council fathers expected. So much so that one French writer declared that the council had inaugurated the reign of ambiguity in the church, which leads us immediately back to Protestantism, for did not the Anglican Bishop of Oxford advise us that it was impossible to discuss the faith without ambiguity? As Romano Amerio states in Iota Unum, even more important is the fact that subsidiarisms were sometimes used in the drawing up of the council documents themselves. These inexact formulations were deliberately introduced so that post-conciliar hermeneutics could gloss over or reinforce whatever idea it liked. He quotes in support of his view this statement by Schulebecks. We will express it in a diplomatic way, but after the Council, we will draw out the implicit conclusions. Amerio concludes, it is a diplomatic style, that, it, that is, as the word itself implies, double, in which the text is formulated to accord with its interpretation, thus reversing the natural order of thinking and writing. Archbishop Lefebvre described these as time bombs and went so far as to describe the council as a conglomeration of ambiguities, inexactitudes, vaguely expressed feelings, terms susceptible of any interpretation and opening wide all doors. And I think Cardinal Heeden said much the same. Michael Davis and Pope John's council, by judicious use of quotations from traditional and liberal Catholics and from Protestant sources, demonstrates that the Archbishop's description was not a wild exaggeration, and I doubt if anyone would gainsay him now. When I was asked to speak on the subject of false ecumenism, therefore, I did not take as my starting point a falsity arising from an erroneous interpretation or application of the Council's decree in ecumenism, but rather from the fact that the decree itself ushered in an utterly new type of ecumenism. 
and ecumenism linked to the utterly new ecclesiology arising from the council. Excuse me a second. Some of you may remember Cardinal Benelli's statement to Dr. Eric the Saventham in October 1976. The Cardinal admitted that whereas an untold number of different forms of Eucharistic celebration had fanned out from the new Mass, all these different forms point in the same direction, whereas the old Mass represented a different ecclesiology. When Dr. de Saventham drew the enormity of this to his attention, the Cardinal said, What did I say? I shall correct myself. Those who wish to retain the old Mass have a different ecclesiology. Cardinal Benelli's Freudian slip was in fact close to the mark. Following Vatican II, a different ecclesiology was expressed, and this was significantly noticeable in the new ecumenism, which differed entirely from that of the preconciliar church, which Cardinal Casper describes as the narrow, post-Tridentine, counter-Reformation outlook of the church. There is no doubt that the new Mass was a consequence of Vatican II's ecumenical outreach to Protestants. A few minutes ago I gave you the view of the Protestant pastor, the Reverend J. Pelican, and we already have the testimony of some Protestants that Canon II of the New Mass could be utilised by them with no difficulty. We also have the testimony of Paul VI's friend, Jean Guiton, who advised us in a radio interview that the intention of Paul VI with regard to what is commonly called the Mass was to reform the Catholic liturgy in such a way that it should almost coincide with the Protestant liturgy. But what is curious is that Paul VI did that to get as close as possible to the Protestant Lord's Supper. There was with Paul VI an ecumenical intention to remove, or at least to correct, or at least to relax what was too Catholic in the traditional sense in the Mass. And I repeat, to get the Catholic Mass closer to the Calvinist Mass. There is really nothing surprising in this. Some proposed preconciliar liturgical reform was already heading in that direction. Needless to say, Calvinists would be billing in their graves at the thought of the very word Calvinist being used in association with the word Mass, which they regard as a blasphemous idolatry. It is no exaggeration, therefore, to posit that the destruction of altars and communion rails, the sidelining of tabernacles, communion in the hand, communion under both kinds, the proliferation of ministers of everything from collections to communion, the abandonment of Latin, plain chant and benediction, the increasing disappearance of genuflection, the mass as meal rather than sacrifice, mass facing the people, presiding ministers, altar girls, the gradual feminization of the altar with a predominance of women readers, ministers at all, the use of guitars and Protestant hymns, all flow inevitably from the virus of ecumenism that infected the council and which still infects the church today. The council's decree in ecumenism informs us that restoration of unity among all Christians is one of the principal concerns of the Second Vatican Council. And one ought not, therefore, to have been surprised that the new Mass and liturgy would express the new ecumenical ecclesiology of Vatican II just as the new code of canon law and the new catechism express it in legal and doctrinal terms. One has to recognise, therefore, that the new catechism reflects the new ecclesiology and that it may contain defects too. I'll return to that subject later. Prior to the Second Vatican Council, the Catholic Church had quite firm ideas concerning the concept of unity and towards those who claimed to be Christian but who were outside the Church. The occupant of the See of Westminster expressed the Catholic principle of unity thus, there is a fundamental difference between unity as understood by the average Protestant, by the average Protestant mind and unity in the Catholic's conception of that term. 
In the case of the Protestant, unity is something that probably never existed, which certainly does not exist today, which may perhaps be realised in some far-off future by a compromise between contending and even contradictory opinions. To a Catholic, such a conception is not only repugnant, but quite impossible. He believes that unity has existed from that day the Church has had a visible organic unity, which, because it is divinely constituted and divinely protected, can never be broken. In the exercise of their free will, men may abandon it and no longer be within its range, but the unity itself remains unbroken and unimpaired. Their abandonment cannot break and impair it. Like every healthy organism, that one church possesses the vital faculty of rejecting and ejecting every element that menaces its vitality and organic unity. He continued, It is clear that the unity of the Catholic Church was thus understood from the earliest days of Christianity. Those were within the unity who, being baptized, accepted the teaching and submitted to the authority of the Church. Thus spoke Cardinal Bourne. Does one ever expect to hear such words echoed by Cardinal Bourne's successor? Pius XI was quite clear as to how non-Catholics could attain that unity enjoyed by the Church. The union of Christians cannot be otherwise obtained than by promoting the return of the dissident to the one true Church of Christ, which in the past they so unfortunately abandoned. Pius XII stated in the mystical body of Christ, It is an aberration from divine truth to represent the Church as something intangible and invisible, as as a mere pneumatic entity, joining together by an invisible link a number of communities of Christians in spite of their differences in faith. Pius XI stated, No one is in the church and no one remains in it unless he acknowledges and accepts with obedience the authority of Peter and his legitimate successors. In 1949, the Holy Office issued a document on ecumenism which stated, among other things, Catholic doctrine must be propounded and explained in its totality and in its integrity. It is not permitted to pass over in silence or to veil in ambiguous terms what is comprised in the Catholic truth on the unique true union by the return of separated Christians to the one true Church of Christ. Pius XII, in his encyclical The Mystical Body of Jesus Christ, informs us that this true Church of Christ is the Holy Catholic Apostolic Roman Church. And later in the same encyclical states, Only those are to be accounted really members of the church who have been regenerated in the waters of baptism and profess the true faith. It follows that those who are divided from one another in faith or government cannot be living in the one body so described and by its one divine spirit. He also invoked non-Catholics to extricate themselves from a state in which they cannot be secure of their own eternal salvation. For though they may be related to the mystical body of the Redeemer by some unconscious yearning and desire, yet they are deprived of those many great heavenly gifts and aids which can be enjoyed only in the Catholic Church. Let them enter Catholic unity, therefore, and join us in one organism of the body of Jesus Christ, hasten together to the one head in the fellowship of most glorious love. Leo XIII, repeating the words of St. Cyprian, reminded us in Satis Cognitum, Whosoever is separated from the church is united to an adulteress. He has cut himself off from the promises of the church, and he who leaves the church of Christ cannot arrive at the rewards of Christ. He who observes not this unity, observes not the law of God, holds not the faith of the Father and the Son, 
clings not to life and salvation. These expressions of papal or Catholic teaching sound harsh to modern ears, which have adapted themselves to the new ecumenically friendly ecclesiology, and I suspect that many here will regard any expression other than these as false ecumenism, and I think rightly so. As I said earlier, it was not only post-conciliar interpretation of the Council decrees which led to a departure from such pre-conciliar teaching. The Council made a subtle change in the description of the Church. Lumen Gentium tells us not that the Church of Christ is the Catholic Church, but rather that it subsists in the Catholic Church. And despite several attempted clarifications by the Holy Office, and even by Cardinal Caspar himself, concerning the meaning of subsists, there is a widespread belief subsisting among ecumenists that the Catholic Church is not uniquely the Church of Christ. Professor George May, in a recent study, remarks that Cardinal Ratzinger is often forced to interpret the fatal term subsisted in such a manner as to render it inoffensive. In his criticism of Leonardo Boff, the Cardinal asserts that the Council chose the word subsisted exactly in order to make it clear that the one sole subsistence of the true Church exists, whereas outside her visible structure only elements of the Church exist, these being elements of the same Church tend and conduct towards the Catholic Church. This appears to be a rather convoluted way of saying that the Catholic Church is the Church of Christ, or is it? In Dominus Jesus, the Cardinal states that the Church of Christ subsists fully only in the Catholic Church. Professor May remarks, This manner of expression is at best unfortunate. If the Church of Christ is held to be fully subsistent only in the Catholic Church, this allows one to conclude that she may be able to subsist in another fashion, that is, to subsist not fully. Francis Sullivan S.J., formerly of the Gregorian University and now in the Theological Faculty of Boston College, pointed out, the difference between these two statements is the difference between the doctrine of Pius XII and that of Vatican II. Clearly this isn't a matter for, hum for humble laymen such as ourselves to resolve. But as one observer remarked, like many other statements in the documents of the Council, this one has not borne good fruit. This is just another example of what our Lord taught the Apostles when he said, No one lights a lamp and puts it under a bushel basket. That is, no one having true doctrine expresses it in an equivocal or vague, or, or vague statements. Although Dominus Jesus was hailed by some as a new syllabus, it too betrayed that conciliatory approach. So much so that even those who find Dominus Jesus unacceptable from an ecumenical standpoint were willing to concede its ecumenical conciliatory approach to the Orthodox at least. The notorious Richard P. McBrien remarked, Dominus Jesus makes a commendably conscious effort to reach out to our Orthodox sisters and brothers with its opening article. It reproduces the text of the Nicene Constantinopolitan Creed with the ecumenically, without the ecumenically divisive filioque. Professor May suggests that subsisted loosened the unity of the Catholic Church with that of the mystical body. If it had not to this function, he said, its use would have been completely superfluous. It is suffice to say that if the Council had adopted Pius XII's is, Dominus Jesus, and a host of other post-conciliar clarifications would have been wholly unnecessary. The decree in ecumenism declares its objective to be the reconcilia reconciliation of all Christianity in the unity of the one and only Church of Christ. Here too we find a difference in approach, but one which was to have great significance in the pursuit of ecumenism, reconciliation in rather than return to the Church. 
The response of the Council is therefore substantially different from that of Pius IX, who in his invitation to non-Catholics at the First Vatican Council stated, Let all of those, therefore, who do not possess the unity and truth of the Catholic Church strive to disengage themselves from a state where they cannot be assured of their own salvation. We address this letter to all Christians separated from us, and we exhort them again and conjure them to return in haste to the one fold of Christ. Note the pontiff addresses here uh, addresses this to all Christians who are separated from us as individuals rather than churches, an undoubted acknowledgement of the fact that Protestantism comes in many varieties, even within branches allegedly adhering to the same confession of faith, a consequence of private interpretation. The decree also gave rise to a striking departure from preconciliar practice, that is, joint worship with non-Catholics, which is opposed to the traditional teaching of the Church, expressed thus by St. Alphonsus. It is not permitted to be present at the sacred rites of infidels and heretics in such a way that you would be judged to be in communion with them. As late as 1960, the London Catholic Truth Society published the pamphlet Attending Non-Catholic Services by the Reverend John MacDonald, which reiterated this teaching. The Church, however, tolerated passive assistance at non-Catholic funerals and weddings. Since Vatican II, however, participation in Protestant services has become de rigueur. Protestant ministers are invited to preach from Catholic pulpits, and significant events in national or local life are seldom devoid of an ecumenical dimension. Catholics and Protestants often join together in Christian as opposed to denominational services. Indeed, as Father Crane indicates in Apropos 23, the advice given by the Secretariat for the Promotion of Unity in Antotum Ecclesiam encourages the very Catholic participation in Protestant and Orthodox services, which the Church's traditional teaching has always forbidden. Furthermore, in response to the secular principle of inclusiveness, ecumenical services often include the presence, if not the participation, of non-Christians, including Jews, Muslims and Buddhists. The change from the preconciliar approach of Pius IX, Leo XIII, Pius XI and Pius XII could not be clearer. This was acknowledged by the response of the Protestant Samuel McCree Cavett in the Abbott version of the documents of Vatican II, who wrote, Instead of dogmatically insisting on the return to Rome as the only possible movement towards unity, the decree is concerned with a movement towards Christ. The significance of the decree stands out vividly when it is read side by side with the encyclical Mortalium Animus of 1928 and the Monitum of the Holy Office in 1948. These represented such an isolated aloofness that the door appeared to be closed against any effective dialogue between Roman Catholics and non-Roman Christians. Today the door is wide open. The door was indeed wide open, so much so that Protestant attitudes and religious indifferentism increased in direct proportion to the fallen conversions. This idea of convergence rather than conversion also spilled over into the church's teaching on non-religious, uh, on non-Christian religions. The Holy Father has advised us that unitatis redintegratio and the declaration of religious liberty dignitatis humani are extremely important from an ecumenical point of view. Modern ecumenism, it seems, not only required a lady to be sidestepped, but led ultimately to the abandonment of Christ's social kingship, which in effect was one of the principal consequences of dignitatis humani. The effect of this on the ecumenical psyche may be adjudged from a report on the Scotsman concerning the Royal Navy's recognition of Satanism as a religion. The report stated, The right to worship is a basic human right, says Father McManus, 
While all Christians should warn people that Satanism is a dangerous religion and that it will eventually cause the adherents great inner distress and loss of peace, they should be the first to acknowledge a Satanist right to worship according to his or her conscience. During the liturgy of the past few weeks, we witnessed the embodiment of the new communism. The preconciliar Good Friday liturgy asked that heretics and schismatics, souls led astray by the deceit of the devil, be rescued from all errors and recalled to our Holy Mother, the Catholic and Apostolic Church, and that having set aside all heretical evil, the hearts of those that err may repent and return to the unity of thy truth. The new liturgy does not express a desire that they return, nor does it suggest they are misled by the deceit of the devil. Instead, Christians are all to be gathered together in one church. The whole preconciliar principle of return has been rejected. No, no less a person than Cardinal Casper has made that clear. We do not advocate an ecumenism of return. Ecumenism is not a way back. It's a way ahead in the future. Oh dear. Concerning the Jews, the old liturgy, even the amended non-perfidious version, was forthright. Almighty and everlasting God, who drivest not away from thy mercy even the Jews, hear our prayers which we offer for the blindness of that people, that acknowledging the light of thy truth, which is Christ, they may be rescued from the darkness. The new liturgy, on the other hand, expresses entirely different sentiments. Let us pray for the Jewish people, the first to hear the word of God, that they may continue to grow in the love of his name and in faithfulness to his covenant. The new catechism also reflects a change in the Catholic attitude to the Jews, stating, and when, one considers the future, God's, <coughs> and when one considers the future, God's people of the old covenant and the new people of God tend towards similar goals, expectation of the coming or the return of the Messiah. But one awaits the return of the Messiah who died and rose from the dead and is recognized as the Lord and Son of God. The other awaits the coming of a Messiah whose features remain hidden till the end of time and the latter waiting is accompanied by the drama of not knowing or of misunderstanding Christ Jesus. But those who were truly God's people of the Old Covenant are not awaiting the coming of the Messiah. They recognized him when he came. Judith Cabo, a convert from Judaism, tells us that modern Judaism tends towards universalist and temporal messianism. I mean by this, she says, that the rabbis could understandably no longer see the Messiah as a person whose coming was awaited and therefore yielded to the pressure of the old machine of Talmudic abstractions. During the 50s, the Messiah had for them been a land, the state of Israel, and it has now become an epoch, the age of universal peace so dear to the heart of Freemasons. One may ask, therefore, which Messiah the Jews are awaiting? The present Holy Father has acknowledged the change of attitude towards the Jews in his book, Crossing the Threshold, stating that this development was the result of dialogue, careful the words here, ecumenical dialogue in particular. In the Catholic Church, it is significant that dialogue with the Jews takes place in the Pontifical Council for promoting Christian unity. Here we have a clear indication that the Jews are already considered implicit Christians, Otherwise, why should dialogue in the Pontifical Council for promoting Christian unity be considered significant? Dr. Eugene Fisher, Associate Director of the Secretariat for Ecumenical and Interreligious Relations at the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops, in an article in the tablet, confirms this. On the pastoral level, 
unwarranted proselytism is already precluded, as Edward Kessler notes, by the principles of religious freedom. Frederici concludes on historical and demographic grounds that, that included in the prohibition of proselytism of the Jews are any sort of organisation set up for conversion of the Jews. The reason, Frederici says, is that these have led in the past and will almost inevitably lead in the future to the psychological and spiritual impairment of the freedom of faith of the Jewish people. He continues, Frederici's suggestion, repeated and reaffirmed time and again by the present Pope, is that the Church needs to concentrate what might be its mission with the Jews, what might be its mission with the Jews, not to the Jews. The joint, and then he goes on to say, the joint and this is what their mission is, the joint proclamation of the one God of Israel to the world, of the moral centre of human destiny revealed in the Ten Commandments, of the saving warning of the Holocaust, and the ultimate necessity of both Jews and Christians to prepare the way for the kingdom of God by working together for tikkun olam, the mending of the world. Please note that this conception does not mention once the name of Jesus Christ. Indeed, it echoes the words of the Jewish writer Israel Shamir, who said, In the new religiosity of the U.S., sometimes called Judeo-Christianity, the Holocaust has superseded the Passion of Christ. It also echoes the sentiments expressed in the magazine Jewish World in 1883. The great ideal of Judaism is that the whole world shall be imbued with Jewish teachings, and that in a universal brotherhood of nations, a greater Judaism... Uh, sorry... A greater Judaism, in fact, all separate races and religions shall disappear. Is this not the very messianic epoch to which Judith Cabot refers? Fisher makes reference to the Good Friday prayer for the Jews and states, So no, the church does not wish the conversion of Jews as a people to Christianity. Otherwise, Catholics would at least pray for it. A view confirmed by Cardinal Casper, who stated... The Church believes that Judaism, that is the faithful response of the Jewish people to God's irrevocable covenant, is salvific for them, because God is faithful to his promises. Certainly the degree Nostratati did not make its final form without considerable lobbying by groups such as the American Jewish Committee, who entered into what they called a fruitful discussion with Cardinal Beer. And there was also a secret accord between the Vatican and certain unnamed Jewish leaders in 1962-63, an accord conducted by Yves Congar at the behest of John XXIII and Cardinal Beer. Congar, of course, made a cardinal by the late Pope, was held to be the personification of the works of Vatican II, one observer claiming at his death that the ideas of Father Congar on the unity of Christians ended in triumph at Vatican II. The late Holy Father's observation that the Jews are our older brothers does not appear to me to be altogether accurate. Those Jews faithful to the old covenant who predated the coming of Christ were indeed our elder brothers, but can, be same, but can the same be said of those who rejected Christ our Lord? And it's also interesting to note that a few days ago, Rabbi Jacques Bempora, director of the Center for Interreligious Understanding in the U.S., who hailed the late Pope as Pope of the Jews, studiously avoided when invited to confirm that he considered the late Pope as a younger brother. The convert from Judaism, Judith Cabot, has asserted that the new, the new liturgists wanted to bring the Mass into line with Protestant reforms, but also into line with modern Judaism. This is by no means as strange as it sounds, as Protestantism and modern Judaism have much in common, but one must admit that at least the Good Friday liturgy has clearly been adapted to suit modern Judaism. 
A similar aversion to conversion appears concerning pagan religions and unbelievers in the New Good Friday liturgy. Many Catholic writers have expressed that this new approach as being an encouragement of Muslims, Hindus or Buddhists to be good Muslims, Hindus or Buddhists rather than an exhortation to abandon their false religions and to turn to that established by the Son of God as the one ark of salvation for all. Please stop the machine and turn the cassette over at this point without rewinding. The program continues on the second side. This change of emphasis in Lumen Gentium and Unitatis Redintegratio were clearly expressed in the new ecumenical Good Friday liturgy. Thus, rather seeking the conversion, a veritable swear word in the progressive lexicon, of pagans or unbelievers, we should, as a Marian all apparatchik once put it, be looking to see how God's mercy transcends the bounds of lawfully established church and finds expression in the sacred writings of other religions as well in one's own scriptures. Here we have an implicit acknowledgement that revelation is found in other sacred writings. And the New Catechism also tells us that, together with us, Muslims adore the one merciful God, mankind's judge on the last day. Yet their God does not comprise the trinity of persons, nor do Muslims accept Jesus Christ as anything other than a creature, and even then as a lesser prophet than Muhammad, who was a mere creature. They certainly don't expect Christ to be their judge in the last day, as do Christians. As an example of how such views impinge on the ecumenical psyche, we have a report from the Catholic Truth Newsletter of the priest who permitted Muslim children to read from the Quran at a school mass in Glasgow in 2003 and in 2004. One can almost hear his defence formulated in terms of the catechism, together with us they adore the one merciful God. In fact, his defence was not on theological, but rather on political grounds. That's political correctness. He wanted the Muslim children to feel included. Here I think it's important to, question, to address the question of those elements of truth that one finds in other religions or in other Christian sects, churches or ecclesial communities. The Thomist Louis Junier observed that Thomas philosophers do not deny that there are elements of truth in Berkeley, Kant, Hegel, Marx and Bergson, nor do Catholic theologians ever deny that there are truths in Protestantism, Judaism or Brahmanism. But he says that it's more a matter of knowing whether these truths are, so to say, at home with themselves in these opposing doctrines. He says we know that these truths have only a partial, fragmentary or incomplete role and that they are wrapped up in flagrant errors which warp them and distort the true import. Thus, what dominates in a false doctrine, and what makes it potentially disastrous, is the spirit of this doctrine, the spirit of error and negation. Junie gives us an example, Judaism and Islam, which insist on the unity of God, which is the truth. But they do so intentionally in a unilateral manner, which excludes the Christian dogma of the Trinity. He continues that all is not false in these doctrines, but their spirit infects all. And Father Garigou Lagrange expressed a similar sentiment when he stated, in a false doctrine taken as a whole, truth is not the soul of the doctrine, but rather the servant of error. I know that my own uh, bishop, uh, excuse me just a second, I might run shortly over, is that all right? Okay, it's just some... Am I well? Where are you both? Okay, I think I'm going to overrun slightly. Mm -hmm. No, I'm going like an express train. 
I note that my own Bishop and Cardinal O'Brien allude to the late Holy Father's visit to Assisi as a great moment in his papacy. As a faithful son of the late Holy Father, this is a moment I would rather mention with profound regret. We have already cited the late Pope's enthusiastic and some would say over-optimistic over expectations of the Second Vatican Council and his exhortation on the other hand for elements of preconciliar mission in Redemptoris Missio. We also have the example in, in his book, Crossing the Threshold, where he quotes without adverse comment, Nostri Tati's observation that Buddhism teaches the way by which men in a devout and confident spirit can either reach a state of absolute freedom or attain supreme enlightenment by their own efforts or by higher assistance. The Pope remained unapologetic, though defensive, of the Assisi meeting in which the Buddhist leader, the Dalai Lama, among others, gathered together praying for peace and when a Buddha was placed on the Catholic altar. Yet in the same book, the Pope admitted that Buddhism is in large measure atheistic. One wonders, therefore, who affords Buddhists that higher assistance and to whom the Dalai Lama was praying at Assisi. These contradictions weigh heavy with simple Catholics. It may not have been the Holy Father's intention to create scandal at Assisi, uh, which was arranged and paid for by the Pantheistic World Wildlife Fund, but it did especially so when the, Buddhist, when the Buddhist idols were installed in the tabernacle in that Catholic church. And the problem with events such as the Assisi is that despite their intentions, they invariably cause a lead to subsequent scandal and to harmful misunderstandings, to syncretism, and even to false Arianism. And they're often used to disarm the laity who protest at syncretist events in their own parish, parishes. For example, last year in Glasgow, when during the visit of the Dalai Lama in Scotland, Buddhists used the sanctuary of St. Patrick's, Patrick's Catholic Church for a singing bowls concert when a photograph of the Dalai Lama was placed upon the altar. When a member of the Catholic Truth Newsletter complained to a trustee of the archdiocese, she recounts, he reminded me of the atrocious events in Assisi when the statue of the Buddha was placed on top of the tabernacle. If it's good enough for the Pope, it's good enough for me, he informed her. We also have the Hindu event at Fatima, which has also been well documented. Ecumenism, as we know it, encourages indifferentism. The poor folks from the Catholic Truth Newsletter who sought to advise their fellow Catholics of the scandal at St. Patrick's Church were astonished at the response they received from some of the Catholics present. They have all been so brainwashed by faith, sharing the said. Apart from the restrictions on praying or attending at non-Catholic uh, or pagan services, the Church has also traditionally taught her children regarding the danger to one's faith of mixed marriages, and modern ecumenism creates an atmosphere in which mixed marriages are more likely to occur. It also creates an emotional and psychological climate which makes disengagement from ecumenical relationships extremely difficult without causing offence. It also creates a climate where proselytism is seen as a form of antagonism. And the familiarity of modern ecumenism breeds contempt for and or fear of conversion. That this sort of attitude pervades the church is confirmed by five Marianal missionaries who stated the following... Tragically, many within the general Catholic population and within missionary institutes associate mission with a violation of the other, a belittling of another's religion or culture, and the exaltation of a sinful institutional church whose doctrines, social structures and traditions contra contradict the gospel. On occasion, missionaries express fear about inviting others to enter the Catholic church. In Redam Torres Missio, Pope John Paul II made several excellent references to the traditional Catholic concept of evangelization. However, as I stated in apropos number 10, 
there are doubts and ambiguities which persist in that encyclical. In paragraph two, for example, he says that missionary activity is a matter for all Christians. And I can't really see uh, any of the preconciliar popes making that statement. Now, <clears throat> finally getting into the last stretch here, I think. There is no clearer example of modern ecumenism in action and of the antipathy to conversion than in the current Renew programme underway in the Diocese of Westminster. The Handbook on Christian Unity, based on the guidelines of the Renew International Programme for Spiritual and Pastoral Renewal, advises us that ecumenical is understood as prayer, celebration, education, learning and practical cooperation among all those who already share unity in the one sacrament of baptism. The handbook calls for the development of small parish-based communities for faith sharing. It promotes what it describes as spiritual ecumenism, which it says calls on Catholics to emulate that which in other churches the Holy Spirit has bestowed, for instance, a tradition of prayer, a rite, of, a rite or a custom in liturgical worship, or a distinctive emphasis for expressing or living the gospel through service in the world. We should be able to recognise, embrace and claim them as gifts held in trust for the whole universal church in the name of unity, it states. But lest there be any chance that troglodytic, narrow, post-Tridentine, counter-reformation types may have other ideas, the, hand, the handbook makes it quite clear that inviting Christians from other traditions to participate in the At Your Word process must not be seen or used as an exercise in persuading them to be Catholic. Heaven forfend that that should happen. The handbook advises us that it is the wish of the Cardinal and the hope of the Diocesan Ecumenical Commission that such ecumenical small communities will form in all our parishes. They could have co-leaders representing the other participating congregations. In explaining their objectives, parish court committees are advised that ecumenical small communities are not about proselytising or sheep-stealing. It is important that each small community has a representative number of Christians of all traditions. Ecumenical initiatives suggested the handbook include tours of neighbouring churches concluded with an act of worship in that church's tradition, attend the services of other Christian communities, not only in special occasions, but at other times too, to be welcomed as guests despite disunity and enter into the spirit of their worship. They tell us to ask a member of the Association of Interchurch Families to share their experience of the ecumenism of marriage. Thus, a situation mixed marriage, which was regarded as a danger to the faith in the preconciliar era, may now be regarded as something worthy of being shared, a sort of ecumenical catechesis. Perhaps they should ask this young fellow, whose experience featured in the Interchurch Families Journal of July 2004, found on the website recommended by the handbook. Martin was confirmed in the Roman Catholic Church several years ago, and in July 2003 was received into membership of the local United Reformed Church in the north of England, which had also nurtured his Christian faith. Here he tells his story. I went to a Catholic primary school and was confirmed at 13. Thankfully, the URC acknowledges Catholic confirmation, so I was and am able to see my confirmation as into the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. I feel that what I have done shows that I am committed to both churches. This raises issues about how to deal with being in both churches. One of these is communion, which is linked to the initiation issue and to the Catholic issue about Eucharistic sharing. This I do not feel I need to face, etc., etc. In the section planning Christian unity liturgies, we are told it's not desirable to conduct a service in Mass, thank heavens, but one may use hymns, prayers, and forms of liturgy from various Christian traditions. 
but do not use prayers, vocabulary, signs, etc., that would be unapproachable or offensive to other traditions. In the glossary of terms, we are advised that there are international agreed statements identifying the many things we have in common, but there's no mention that the Arsic statements have been severely criticised by the Holy See, and it goes on and on. And the, the, the defined church, so this, this is the definition of church, uh, uh, the word church or what they mean by church. When we say the church, Catholics usually mean the Catholic church, in the same way that Anglicans mean the Church of England. We should be careful not to use this term of all terms in a way that appears to exclude other Christians. It is, after all, the official teaching of the Catholic church, and therefore of the universal church, which it reveals par excellence, that we seek the unity and not the exclusivity exclusivity of being in the communion of the people of God. There is but one church, many particular churches and many groups of Christians ourselves among them in the Roman Catholic Church. Catholics above all should emphasize the church's oneness because we are possessed of it in fullness and not because we are possessive of our separateness which is sinful. I think I'll stick with Pius XII's simple formula which this definition appears to suggest is now banned. That is, the true church of Christ is the Holy Catholic Apostolic and Roman Church. I've already cited from one internet site that the handbook recommends. There's another one, Christian Ecology Link. And if you click on it, you get through to uh, Green Christians, a magazine, the, their journal, in which uh, we read an article by Michael O'Gara, Credum Catholic, which is in favour of population control. What a broad chapel is encompassed by Ecumenia. Yeah, I could go on, no, there's plenty more examples. And then, of course, we've got inter- intercommunion, which is, is supposed to be banned, but the fact that the Prime Minister could communicate regularly at his local church without much ado until there was a public stushy makes one wonder just how strictly these rules apply in practice, and it remains to be seen whether the, the late point of strictures against these will have any more effect than those against the misuse of extraordinary ministers. Cardinal Winning uh, <clears throat> once remarked, in furtherance of ecumenism, Catholics may have to concede one or two things. I don't know what, but there may be things deeply ingrained, very precious to many Catholics. I don't know how much more we can actually lose. And it's indeed one of the characteristics of the ecumenical movement that it's Catholics who are Protestantized rather than the opposite. Gerald Warner, one of the wittiest public Catholic writers of a generation, described this process thus in last week's Scotland on Sunday. Since Vatican II, the much-hyped ecumenical movement has become a striptease by the Catholic Church, while everybody else kept their clothes on. As Professor May, the Dean of the Catholic Faculty of Canon Law in Maine, said, the majority of Protestants had for long recognised that there is no more effective lever for the Protestantization, that is, the destruction of the Catholic Church, than the pretended ecumenism proclaimed by the progressives. The enthusiasm of Protestantism for ecumenism regularly stops short of all, of all of a sudden when it's expected to make concessions to the Catholic Church or to adopt Catholic doctrines. There isn't a single case known where Protestantism has practiced inter- interconfessional cooperation which might have turned out to be to its disadvantage. And he goes on and on. He says it's a gigantic illusion to pretend that reforms have been accomplished in the church in recent years. The progressive movement for the greater part is nothing other than the revival of Protestant conceptions and institutions. This movement is simply the Protestantization of the Catholic Church by itself. To all but the ecumenically blinded, it's obvious that ecumenism is a busted flush. Despite protestations by pontiffs, cardinals and bishops of ecumenical advancement, the status quo is probably worse than it was a hundred years ago. At least then, most Protestant churches with which we now pursue unity afforded a greater, de- a greater degree of respect for the natural and moral law. We've now got... Uh, 
we had, with the, we had the example a few weeks ago of Archbishop uh, uh, Conte having to argue with one of our Church of Scotland ecumenical partners on the question of therapeutic cloning, which the Church of Scotland members supported. And Lord Gill, uh, in, in a speech to the Latin Mass Society, exercised his legal powers of observation to sum up the results of the ecumenical study by ARSIC, stating that from the outset both sides have been engaged in a fundamentally futile exercise, that of creating a seeming reconciliation of two ir irreconcilable theologies. Now, if one of Scotland's leading legal minds can do that, I don't know why our bishops and leading uh, theologians haven't managed to do the same. Now, we're asking where is this, where is, uh, this uh, ecumenism going to take us? Sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> and th I think this is one of, the, one of the important parts, actually. Cardinal Casper has given us a vision of Christian unity for the next century. He published it in the tablet in May 2003. And the Cardinal has admitted, as far as any died in the will ecumenist made, that the type of ecumenism practiced since Vatican II has failed. And he more or less admits this. He says that after the first wave of enthusiasm, that there's been disenchantment or un unfulfilled expectation. And he, he, he's disparaging about all the, 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 the documents that have been published. Who reads this stuff? Who wants to, he says. But like an ecclesiastical musical Kelly, ecumenism just won't stay down. A crisis, said Cardinal Casper, is a situation in which old ways come to an end, but room for new possibilities open. And then he gives us, uh, in a speech laced with some orthodox sentiments, he tells us that ecumenism can be only ecumenism in truth. The church is the same in all centuries. Today, one cannot build a new church in contradiction with our own tradition. We cannot be so proud as to believe that we have more spirit than our forefathers, than all the church fathers and great theologians in the past. The Holy Spirit who was at work in the past does not work in contradiction, he says. Cardinal Casper has stated elsewhere that the ecumenical movement and the goal it has set, the full unity of disciples of Christ, remains within the furrows marked by tradition. On that we might all agree. My fear is that there's a great deal of sowing of tears occurs at the same time. Cardinal Casper's new possibilities for ecumenism is described as spiritual ecumenism and ecumenical spirituality, Defined as further common reading of the Bible, exchange of spiritual experiences and works of mercy. That's the very type of ecumenism now being pursued in Westminster. In other words, the approach via high-level high dialogue and ecumenical activism has failed. Now an alternative ploy is to work through the grassroots. And he says, many people no longer understand our scholastic terminology, even central concepts, even central concepts for them have become meaningless and devoid of sense. We need to imbue them with experience. This means we must translate them not only into modern language, but also into everyday life and experience. And I translate that to mean that we can't make people think ecumenically, let's make them act ecumenically. So the next phase of the ecumenical onslaught will therefore comprise pushing spiritual ecumenism at every level. The Pontifical Council for, the late, uh, for Christian Unity is already collecting a series, of, a series of witnesses involving concrete and lived, lived spiritual ecumenism. And Cardinal Conte suggested that one of these is the Focolari movement, from which the spirituality of uni, unity sprang forth. And I suspect that Tasia will come along there too. Now, this ecumenism now proposed appears to me to be tantamount to the dissemination of little Soviets of ecumenism throughout the church in preparation for an ecumenical October revolution. This does not mean that the theoretical aspect of ecumenism will be forgotten. 
Cardinal Casper gives us a revealing insight as to how that new unity based on the concept of pluriformity within unity might be attained. He advises us that to confess the same faith does not necessarily mean to confess the same creedal formula. And as an example of this, he gives us the declaration and justification between the Catholic Church and the Lutherans, where he states a so-called differentiated consensus was reached, that is, a consensus on fundamental questions. In essence, he said that while unresolved problems remain at issue, no Catholic, no church-dividing difference any longer exists with regard to the question of justification. Hence, prior existing divisive contradictions were transformed and reconciled in complementary assertions, expressions, concerns, and approaches. Robert Sunjanus advises, however, that the equivocation in the Declaration's annex between faith and faith alone reveals the very nature of the joint declaration. It's an effort to combine Lutheran and Catholic beliefs in such fashion so as not to deny either side's opposing beliefs or offend the opposing side. Each side can extract statements from the joint declaration with which it agrees and interpret them the way it likes. And Cardinal Casper also considers that there's been substantial progress between Anglicans and the Church and priesthood and Eucharist in Arsic 1. One suspects from reading his, his vision that Anglican orders are up for re-evaluation, that the papacy is up for re-evaluation. I can give you chapter and verse on that later, or you can pick this up at the end if you want. Um, but when, 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 we, when we get to his vision at the end, he, he, he talks, his final vision is, through and even in different languages, cultural forms, formulations, expressions, accents, concerns and approaches, I envision communion as participation in the same faith and participation in the same sacraments, especially sharing at the, the same table of the Lord. And I envision it also through the mutual recognition of the ministry of episcopy in apostolic succession and communion with the Petrine ministry. And this is a little bit. The dogmatic understanding and practice of which is reinterpreted and re-received in the light of the whole tradition of the church. I don't know whether he means by that our church or all these churches that are coming together. And with regard to the current needs of the church. In this way the churches remain churches in legitimate diversity and retain the best of the tradition while yet becoming one church. All this, and I've already indicated to you that he says ecumenism is not a way back. All this seems in stark contrast to Pius XI's teaching in Mortalium Animus. One may not promote the unity of Christians otherwise than by procuring the return of dissidents to the one true church. Does the Cardinal not tell us that the Holy Spirit does not contradict himself? What spirit then tells us to do the opposite of what Pius XI prescribed? In Mortalium Animus, the pontiff warned us that the alluding words of the pan-Christians promoting Christian unity cloak a most grave error, subversive of the foundation of Catholic faith. He warned bishops not to be led astray by harmful fallacies. He posed a question to the bishops. We ask, can men who follow contrary opinions belong to one and the same federation of the faithful? How so great a variety of opinions can make the way clear to affect the unity of the church, we know not. And he said that unity can only arise from one teaching authority, one law of belief, and one faith of Christians. Forty years of ecumenism have emptied our churches and led to widespread indifferentism among Catholics. The well of conversion is all but dried up. Converts are received into the church as a matter of respecting their human rights rather than a sheep returning to the sheepfold. It has left many sheep open to predation to the ravenous wolves of evangelical proselytism in poor Catholic countries, so much so that in many Latin American Catholic countries of now sizable Protestant populations derived from a once Catholic people. 
What should an attitude to the council be, therefore? I would suggest that we follow the advice of John Medron. A pastoral council, neither infallible nor irreformable. Vatican II awaits its final, its final fate. Only the church will be able to determine that. She will begin, no doubt, by trying to purge it of its evil intentions. She will have the power to rectify it, reform it, or abolish it. It is not for us to decide. Our role as grassroots Catholics, as simple soldiers of the church taught, was to refuse the unacceptable. We have done it. We will not cease to do so. We should, in the words of the late pontiff, interpret the council insofar as it is received in the light of tradition and as it includes the dogmatic formulas propounded a century before by the First Vatican Council. We should follow the advice of St. Vincent Lovelaren. In the Catholic Church, it is essential that we hold that which has, which has been believed everywhere, always, and by everyone. We should hold fast to the old masters of bulwark against Protestantizing influences. We should pray that the next pontiff, specifically consecrate Russia to the Immaculate Heart of Mary, as requested at Fatima, both as an act of reparation for what happened at Vatican II, but also as a signal of the end of modern ecumenism. In a pastoral letter on the conversion of non-Catholics in 1957, the then Bishop of Galilee, Joseph McGee, admonished his flock for their apparent indifference in seeking the conversion of non-Catholics, which, he said, seemed to argue a lack of zeal for God's glory and for the salvation of our neighbour. He said, It is not as if men may find anywhere else what we find in the Catholic Church. They cannot and will not, because she is unique. To her and her alone was given custody of revealed truth, the means of sanctifying men. He asked his flock to call on the powerful intercession of the Mother of God, so that she may come to, to mean to many thousands of her countrymen what she means to every devout Catholic. By your prayers, by your good Catholic lives, by your hidden penances and mortifications, you will please God with the means of bringing souls to Jesus Christ through his church. That was the voice of the church I heard as a boy near sure. I suggest that we could do no better than to follow that advice to the letter. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Um, thank you very much indeed, Anthony. I mean, that had qualities which those of us who've heard you before have learnt to regard as typical of you. Both your bluntness, there was none of the ambiguity you've rightly referred to in council documents, and your probably underrated scholarliness. You have amassed a huge heap of information there, of evidence for what you say. We're very, very grateful, Anthony. Um, now... Robert is beginning at uh, half past 11, so you have time for perhaps two or three questions. There will be a much longer question session at the end of the day in which all three speakers will be present to answer. Uh, Michael Pettick first, please. Um, can you wait for the roving microphone? Anthony, can you tell me, uh, please, what is the difference between the position that you've just expounded and these three things. First of all, Fenianism, salvation only for Catholics, Jansenism, not a drop of grace for the heretics, and Donatism, which is that ancient heresy that held that sacraments administered outside Catholic unity are invalid. And if there are differences, if consequently there is a real, though imperfect, communion between Catholics and non-Catholics. How do, how do we best conduct ourselves for their benefit? Um, you know, do we slam the door on them and tell them not to come back until they believe as we do? 
or do we help them to keep what they have lest they lose it? Um, yes, there are four separate points there. Did you get them all? Uh, the first one you mentioned was Feeneyism. Well, I accept the teaching of the church and, and the, the Feeney question, uh, and that was, uh, that was treated by Pius XII like in 1959. Um, and there's a, the question there of that uh, those outside the church, uh, although they don't have the, the normal means, it's up to God really uh, what happen, uh, as to what happens to those outside the church. Uh, the, or the normal means for the salvation of men is within the church. Mm-hmm. And the second was Jansenism, which, uh, which says that well, the Jansenism says uh, effectively that divine grace is not offered outside the church. He said, "Not a drop of grace for the heretics." Well, I think actually, Professor May covers that, and I refer to the study that he did, and he refers to that in, in the relationship of the grace that that may apply or the grace that others may get outside the church comes from the church it doesn't come from the the heretical or the schismatic churches themselves it comes from the church because the church is a fullness of the means of grace and salvation so the the individuals outside it uh, get that grace by means of the church itself not by means of the heretical bodies that they belong to and lastly, and, but, but in all these questions, I mean, mm-hmm. I'm thinking off the hoof here. And all these questions, I defer to the, to the official teaching of the church, especially the preconciliar teaching of the church on these matters. I'm not trying to suggest anything opposite to what the church teaches in these matters, if that's what you're, you're perhaps suggesting. And lastly, how, would you, how should we conduct ourselves in relation to our separated brethren? Well, I think that we should behave as we did in the, in the pre-conciliar church we should I'm not saying we should be unfriendly to Protestants uh, uh, I, I think that um, the church in, in the pre-conciliar days were, were very friendly with Protestants, we were so friendly with them we wanted them to share in the, the, full, uh, the fullness of the church and we invited them in we invited them to become Catholics we tried by every means in our power to convert them to the one true church we didn't abandon them. I, I would say that nowadays we, we have a worse attitude when we're saying, well, it doesn't really matter whether you're a member of the church or not. Find your own way without the full means of salvation, of the, the unique, uh, the, the only means of salvation that the church provides. Uh, John Gunn, please. Um, Anthony, uh, current position of the church at the moment, obviously we don't have a pontiff. There will be a new pontiff coming in, elected by 117 cardinals. From your perspective, do you believe that the, there is a trend in the College of Cardinals to rein us back towards um, post-conciliar church or to actually push us further away from that? And if that is the case, um, as lay Catholics, what can we do to protest about this false ecumenism? Well, I think actually, uh, in, in one of the papal, in, I think it was Redemptor of Hominus, I think actually Paul the, uh, John Paul II told us that we had a right to protest and that our voices ought to be heard actually. Um, but as far as as far as what the conclave are going to do, I don't. I honestly don't have a clue. I don't know whether they're going to rein us in or or, or, rein, or rein themselves in, shall we say, 
or or push ecumenism further. I fear that if they push ecumenism further, the church is just going to. It's not going to. The church is never going to disappear, but it's going to become a shadow of its its former self. A very quick supplement. Yeah, John. just supplementing to that. Uh, reading the Gospels, when Christ says He comes back, will He find any faith? <laughs> um, is the conclave going to fulfil that prophecy? <laughs> yeah, well, I think there's only one person who knows that, and he's a divine person. <laughs> Thank you very much. I would like to ask this question, ask it directly, because I believe in being direct. You mentioned the liberal aberrations that have resulted from misinterpretations since Vatican II. But would you equally condemn uh, aberrations such as traditionalism, which has set itself apart from the church and has arrogated to itself a position that it virtually is the church and I must say the most anti-Catholic sermon I've ever heard preached was in a chapel of the Society of St. Pius X and the sermon in itself was poison. So do you disassociate the two wrongs or do you, uh, are, are you on the side of those people? <coughs> well, I am neither. I think the only one, are you for Paul, are you for Peter? I'm for n- none of these sort of uh, sectaries, if you want to call it that, although I don't think that everyone who belongs to the Society of uh, St. Pius X uh, would, fo- would probably fall within the description you've given of them. I think there are, there are people in there and some of the writers who, are, uh, who I would say are, are dispensing not poison uh, but food uh, for, for Catholics who uh, are, de- are denied uh, much of the, the proper teaching they should get in their own churches. I think a far worse crime is the fact that in most of our parish churches we very we very seldom hear any of the word of Christ at all. Now, I could go, you can go to any you can go to any uh, particular body in the church just now and find people who may give poisonous sermons. That's down to the individual priest. It doesn't character, it doesn't uh, uh, characterise the whole the whole outfit. So I don't belong to I belong to the Catholic Church. And I believe that in the times that we're in just now, we have to, people are hanging on to whatever life belts they can to maintain their faith. And I'm not going to decry people who feel that they have to hang on to the, the life belts uh, attached to the, the society, uh, the, to the society of Pius X or to the society of St Peter or to whatever in their attempt to hold faith to the to, uh, hold uh, firm to the faith that they received at baptism. Um, Frank, I've got your name down. Uh, so very, bri- very briefly indeed. Well, go on quickly then. Has Anthony ever read a book called One and Holy by Carl Adam, written before the war, I believe? I don't think so. Okay, here, well, what reading? Yeah. Thank you very much. Uh, okay, thank you, uh, uh, Anthony. Okay. You, you won't, of course, be disappointed. No, we'll be hearing from you later.